Well, good morning. It's um, it's a wonderful time of year. In in Zen circles, we've just been celebrating Buddha's birthday, and uh, of course, it's Passover and Easter is today. So all of these so-called I don't know special events that we pick up out of our ordinary every day and, and set aside as something a little bit uh, special to acknowledge what? What are we acknowledging? Well, for Buddha's birthday, uh, it's quite a wonderful thing. I, I know that in the Theravadan tradition and in the Vajrayana tradition, um, the birth and the death and the enlightenment are all celebrated with one big, giant party. Um, in Zen, we spread it out over the year so that Buddha's Parinirvana is in February, for 15th of February. Um, the birthday is the 8th of April, and the Enlightenment Day is the 8th of December. So that way we can have at least three retreats based on those. Um, so the 8th of April uh, is when we celebrate the birth, and we usually have a statue. The one at Jikoji is one that uh, one of the caretakers carved out of a big chunk of wood. It's very um, primitive, wonderfully primitive looking. In a, in a big wooden bowl it stands, pointing to the heavens and pointing to the earth. Because Buddha, when he was born, said, Above the heavens, below the heavens, I alone am the world-honored one. Very cheeky thing to say, one would think. But when you think about it, each one of us said that when we were born. Here I am. Why? Of course, of course, each one a Buddha. And then Buddha took seven steps in a circle. Actually, I think he took the seven steps first, and then he said it. And the gods rained sweet dew and flower petals to cleanse and freshen this new thing. Very, very wonderful image. And in it, in our practice of celebration, is infused the suffering of the world. Because it set up this Buddha statue on an altar with incense in front of it, and one by one, each one goes up and pours sweet tea over the baby Buddha's head. Kids love this. It's especially for children, and kids will just pour and pour watching it pour all the way down and offer incense with particular suffering of particular people in mind or just the great suffering in the world in mind. Sending metta with every pouring of the ladle of sweet tea. And so for all the the joyousness and and the new birthness of it, 
is this, this deep recognition of how things are and a deep wish for um, an amelioration of it. A good friend of mine is a Jesuit priest, teaches at Santa Clara University. And he was saying the other day that in his circles, the um, prevailing idea now is is to de-emphasize Good Friday when Jesus was uh, killed and make much of Easter uh, when Jesus was uh, resurrected, rose again. And he was, he's very um, miffed about this. He thinks it's a big mistake. He said, because it's really about the suffering. And if we overlook the suffering part, it's just one more um, part of the pleasure principle, you could say. They go together. I've been thinking a lot about um, how we know what we know. This whole business of, of knowledge. Nya. It hits in Sanskrit. The nya, um, <clears throat> which we still have, knowledge. It's a part of our language still. There's prajna, which is is the whole seamless, complete, what we call empty, which isn't empty at all, but replete. The deep wisdom that um, encompasses everything. And then there's Vijna, the mind that cuts everything up into little bits and pieces so that we can talk about it. It's our genius as human beings to, to name everything. We have a name for everything. And if we don't have a name for something we come across, we instantly give it one. If we're scientists, we give it in Latin. Our whole body is named in that way, in Latin. One of my daughters-in-law is a surgeon, and I looked at her anatomy book with amazement. Every tiny little aspect of our body, inside and out, has a name. And so this knuckle has a different name from this knuckle. This finger has a different name from this finger. Um, and, and you can think how easy it is to, um, for this finger to think it's special uh, and have its own name and its own life. It could write a little uh, journal every day about its experience, and it would be very different from this one and this one and this one. 
actually not that different, but enough, enough to say, oh, this is me, and forget that it's part of a hand, much less that the hand is part of an arm, part of a body, part of everything else, everything else. Buddha said there are three kinds of knowing. The knowing of belief and the knowing of theory and the knowing of experience. We mostly base our lives on belief and theory I think we try not to. Um, And it's a very interesting exercise that that I offer to you this morning to to examine your belief systems. Systems, because there are lots of them. Much of it comes from our our conditioning. And also from our experience. We extrapolate from our experience theories and beliefs. Of course, we have to. When we hang on to them, um, cling to them, fight over them, uh, it becomes absurd because they're just wiggles in our mind. You can't show a belief. It's just something that goes on inside of us that often we will fight to the death for. It's very sad, really. It's wonderful that Buddhism is not a belief system. Buddha said one of his most important teachings was don't take anybody's word for anything. Don't believe anything that anybody says unless it resonates with you. Completely, deeply in your heart makes sense to you. He said anything that I say, don't take it unless it has meaning for you. Very important teaching. Partly, I think, because the human being has such a long childhood, we have to be taken care of and depend on grown-ups for so many years that we get completely used to thinking that somebody knows what we're supposed to be doing. Somebody understands how things really are. And so even when we become adults, we're still looking for somebody to tell us what to do and to think. And, and it's such a grateful thing when somebody does. Oh, thank goodness. No, they must know. And it's a very scary thing to realize finally that uh, we're the grown-ups and we're supposed to know.
and we don't. We often, often don't know. This is what Buddha said about knowledge. This is from the Samutta Nikaya Sutra. Monks, I will teach you everything. Listen to it. What, monks, is everything? Eye and material form, ear and sound, nose and odor, tongue and taste, body and tangible objects, mind and mental objects. These are called everything. Monks, he who would say, I will reject this everything and proclaim another everything, he may certainly have a theory of his own. But when questioned, he would not be able to answer and would moreover be subject to vexation. Why? because it would not be within the range of experience. The range of experience. That's another way of talking about uh, trusting ourselves, trusting what we actually know what has come through us, you could say. This whole huge uh, system that we call I and me, this incredible receiving and sending system that we are, it's the basis of our knowledge. And we can trust it. We easily don't trust it. And part of our culture is set up to uh, create doubts in us about ourselves. I think doubt is very natural. Um, And then it's uh, used to sell us things. Um, If you just use this shampoo, uh, you'll make lots of money and everybody will love you. If you use this toothpaste or buy this particular car, everything is going to be okay. Uh, They use our doubt for, for this. And yet, the beauty of our practice, this meditation practice, is that if we sit for any period at all, all the accumulation of beliefs and theories about ourself and about our world begin to fall away. We can't throw them away. We can't get rid of any of it. But if we sit, it just naturally becomes um, like the snow that swirls in those little 
those little globes that you used to get at, at Christmas time. I think it swirls and swirls, but if you just leave it alone, it just all settles down. Our minds settle down that way. And all that stuff about us and them and it just begins to settle away. And all we're left with is the experience. We're left with our breath. We're left with the sound of the doves and the, and the sirens. It's a very, very precious and important thing we're doing here. We can't solve the suffering in the world, but we can be with it. Because as all those beliefs fall off, our heart can open. And although it's, it's like my friend Tenny talked about Easter, you know, it's all the fun, wonderful happiness of Easter. Um, when our heart hauls open, it opens to the great suffering as well, the darker side, the hard side. And that's the saving of us, and that's the saving of the world. In our San Jose Sangha, we're about to, uh, we're preparing for um, a Jizo ceremony next Saturday. Um, Y'all are invited. It's, um, I don't know how many people know about Jizo. Jizo is a, 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 um, a form of Avalokiteshvara, a form of Kuan Yin. And Jesus is the only bodhisattva who um, goes to to hell, goes into the deepest, most horrible hells with an iron staff, with many rings on the the staff. You'll see statues of Jesus everywhere. And Jesus is just a plain monk. You know, many of the bodhisattvas, uh, if you go to the New Asian Museum, you'll see them with jewels, beautiful beautiful necklaces and things. Jizo is just a plain nothing kind of monk with this iron staff, with these rings that make so much noise. He goes and he bangs on the iron doors of hell until they open up and then goes in to be with those deeply suffering people. Jizo is um, uh, very particular, particularly... um, almost worshipped, you could say, in Japan, uh, and especially for travelers and for children. And you see little Jizos all up and down some of the roads to the temples especially, Um, sometimes just a few rocks piled on top of each other, or very plainly carved uh, little faces with a little body. And then they're dressed in a red hat or a red bib or a red apron. And the... Um, someone has sewn 
this red garment and put it on Jizo with uh, a special uh, prayer for uh, a lost child, a child who's died, um, someone who's ill. Sometimes you see toys with them. People have started having these ceremonies. Uh, here, Yvonne Rand brought the, brought the practice back from Japan. Um, and we've had several of them. Jizo is, is, is very wonderful for, um, for carrying not only the staff that makes enough noise through the screams of hell that people know that he, she is there, but also carries a globe, a great glowing globe of light. So even in the darkest corners, um, he can be seen and people can be seen and met met in their suffering. And that's our practice too, isn't it? How it is that we can meet what appears, including the deep suffering that shows up. It's very easy to turn away, and we often wish to turn away from our own suffering and the suffering of others. But truly, the light is shining there, and we need to see. There's another um, another Buddha's birthday story. If you read The Life of Buddha by Nanamoli, Nanamoli put together a, a sequential historical account of Buddha, pulling him out of all the different earliest sutras that he could find, the ones closest to Buddha's life. In India, they don't do that. They don't do history the way we do in this linear way. It's just a, a big, uh, a big bunch of things that you can turn around like this. But we, we like to see how it began and how it ended and everything in between. So Nanamoli did that, and it's a wonderful thing to read. The earliest birth story says that Buddha was born. And a great, great light appeared. A great light, so great that it filled up the whole universe. Everything became lighted up. Even the darkest crevices where no light had ever, ever been, the light came. And there were beings in those crevices who were amazed. They looked and there were others with them. They could see the others. They could see each other. That's what Buddha's light is for us. That's what the mind of Buddha is for us. And in the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church actually, Um, 
which has Easter a bit later uh, than now, than this Easter, um, when Easter actually comes at midnight, everyone has been sitting in the dark. And then the priest announces, he lives. And everyone lights a candle and the whole church fills up with light. These things are all about something untalkaboutable, but very deep. He lives. It lives. We live right now. So that's what I brought to say. Um, are there questions? Comments? Arguments? Mm-hmm. Yes? So what happens to suffering when we're willing to sit and deal with it? What happens to it? Depends on the situation, doesn't it? You can't promise anything. You know, if I say, oh, it's going to be transformed into something wonderful, or um, there'll be uh, something good, it may not be. Sometimes things are just horrible when they're horrible. But if we turn away from it, that in itself creates so much more suffering on top of suffering. So you can say that extra suffering won't be there. And if you're interested in in creating some kind of... um, change in the situation, the only way you can change it is to be there with it. So as, as an action, as ability to act, if we're running away or turning away or adding to our own suffering that way, we can't begin to help whatever's, whatever is needing help. Okay? Yes. I like what you said about everything. Yes. Yeah, it's a nice idea. It's kind of overwhelming. You know, like every more piece. If I don't know what, then someone else does. That's right. For life learning that. That's right. So it's really sweet. If I really ask you what I want to know, it would be, you know, how to make it happen. How do you make it happen faster? It seems like some of the things that I thought resonate with me, resonate with me 
should not have gone. What Buddha meant by that is, um, is is the kind of advice that is given about uh, the mind that we bring to study or to sit. Um, that you don't sit down with a sutra uh, with this kind of mind, the grabby kind of mind, trying to get more information or get get something, any more than we come to sit trying to achieve something that when we come to sit, it's a kind of divestment and a, and a humbling of our of ourselves. And when we come to the sutras, we come with a humbling of our minds to, to be open. Um, so it's not, it, it's not the kind of resonance that we think, oh, that's something delicious more that we can get and, and consume in some way, but um, a much more humble kind of, of knowing the knowing that takes us in in places that we wouldn't want to go. Often we have a lot of resistance to what we know is really right for us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could tell a little more about the Jesus ceremony. Like, what is the ceremony? I've seen those little Jesus all over. Japan. Yeah. Yeah. What's... It's very simple. Um, you, you, there's a lot of red fabric and you decide what you're going to sew. Um, I suspect we have a jizo that one of the, the students in San Jose made. It's about this tall. It's, it's very nice, just a very simple monk holding like this. And last time we did it, somebody made a hat, somebody made uh, a ruff and a bib and uh, an apron seems like there was something else. There were about six people, so there were six garments. And I suspect there'll be more this time. Um, so I think we're going to have to get a branch of a tree and hang them all over a tree as well. Um, so you spend about an hour very crudely sewing. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be a seamstress kind of person to do it, thank goodness. Um, but it, you just make some kind of little crude... Uh, thing and then you're offered the opportunity to talk about it if you want to and some people do and some people don't Uh, often um, in Japan it used to be uh, was about abortions Um, and that's not so common anymore because abortions aren't so common anymore but that is one aspect of it Uh, I know there will be some of those this Saturday and I also know there's um, uh, one of the people is her, her children were friends with two kids whose father went berserk and killed them and their mother and himself. So she's coming with this really, really painful situation about those two little children. So it, it can be any kind of situation, really, uh, around those. And after you've done the sewing and told your story or not told it, um, if you want to, you can make a pocket and put the person's name in it, um, in the garment. And then one by one, as we chant the Heart Sutra, 
um, the, the garment is taken up and, and tied onto the, onto the Jizo. And then Jizo is left outside, and the, the weather just weathers it quietly down again back to the earth. So it's very, very simple. And um, you take lots and lots of Kleenex. Um, yeah. Yes? Yes. It's a very important point. Thank you for bringing it up. It's very important. Um, one of the great teachers in India always said, uh, you take care of yourself first. Self first and then others. Because if you're not strong, then, then really it doesn't help. So um, I think in the kind of world that we're living in, where everything is so fast and so busy, that the only way to really take care of ourselves is to be strict with ourselves and create a place and a time every single day that's just for us and our practice. Otherwise, I, I know for myself, I just get swamped with everything else. And I think that's true for all of us. Uh, it's hard to do it, 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 at a certain point. You know, I think, well, but it's just me, and what about all of that over there? But just me is just as important as anything else. And then at the same time, I also struggle with um, when I think it's good to sort of uh, leave time for your mind. Yes. Kind of get back to itself. Yes. Then um, I find also, but what about time for my body? I mean, it's sort of a yes. thing, you know? Yes. <laughs> Yes. So I, I feel always like I'm always like trying to balance like one aspect or the other. Yeah, I know. You know? I know. It's, it's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the Dalai Lama who gets up at 4.30 in the morning and does his practices from 4.30 till 7.00. And then I think he does some yoga, and then he does breakfast, and then he does his life. So, um, and I don't know what time he goes to bed, but <laughs> but I, I, it's difficult. It's really, really difficult. And of course, we're so well informed. I think that's a part of it too, that we don't live in a village where things are very limited. There are just a certain amount of things that one can do in a small village. 
and only a few things that one even knows about. You don't know what's going on in, in the bigger world. Even 20 miles away, usually, people don't know. But here in this world, we know everything it feels like. And there's so many places where we could put our hand, where it would really make a difference. And it gets to be extremely frustrating because of that. And I think we have to use our discriminating mind very carefully and just choose one thing or two things to take care of and not get swamped by it and try to think that we can take care of everything because we can't. That's all right. Yes. Yeah. Well, best not to get stuck anywhere, including in Buddhism. Uh, <clears throat> one of the Zen teachers always said, wash your mouth out with soap if you call yourself a Buddhist. Because <laughs> it creates a sense of separation. So you can be a Buddhist without anybody ever knowing. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 I understand, but we have to choose and be open to everything changing so that we can make more choices as time goes on. You never know, Quakers say proceed as way opens, so just keep moving. Thank you. Thank you. Good questions. Yes. I think I know the answer to this in that the question, which is the experience, but I still want to ask it. Um, there is always that fine line between acknowledging suffering and getting caught up in it. Yes. Yeah, it's it's hard, and we do, of course, we suffer. And that's being caught up in it, isn't it? Um, we talk sometimes about um, the two sides, compassion and wisdom. And from the wisdom side, we, we can have a real objectivity. We can see from a distance how things are. We can even watch armies clashing by night, as they say, um, with with a, a kindness that is uh, remote, you know, it's it's as a parent would watch um, children in the throes of whatever they're in, um, with a loving heart, but from far away. That's that's the kind of wisdom. But compassion throws you right into the middle of the of the mess. And then you get stained by it, you get soaked by it, you get bloodied up by it um, in order to to 
to be it. Um, it, there are two sides, wisdom and compassion, to, to this one mind of us. Um, and sometimes we specialize in one or the other. Um, and sometimes when we get really caught and torn up on the compassion side, if we can remember or if we sit enough, the sitting itself brings the wisdom side to the fore so that we don't get so um, overwhelmed but it's it's a part of it, actually. Um, I, I was in Vallejo yesterday, and uh, they were talking about a woman a block from where we were who had thrown her baby into the water, and uh, somebody jumped in, somebody who didn't know how to swim, and saved that baby. Um, that's... That's the compassion, the willingness to to give your whole life to it, um, if that's what's required. And sometimes we just do. That's what we have to do. Thank you. Oh, sorry. If something doesn't have a name, does it exist? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll tell you my experience. I sat a very intense session, uh, a week-long retreat, many years ago at Hidden Villa, where we used to have our retreats at the youth hostel. And um, when I came home, I was still very much filled with the sitting. And when I got up the next morning in my own bedroom, I looked out the window, and there was the most remarkable bird I had ever seen in my whole life. It was bigger than a sparrow or, or a junco. It was, it was, you know, about this big. It stood tall, and it, it had this bright yellow beak, and it had a most amazing eye with a, a, a white ring around the outside of its eye, very bright eye, and this lovely soft sort of, uh, I can't see what kind of color that is. It's a kind of gray, but a wonderful soft sheen of a gray of the back of it. And uh, it stood very straight and tall. And the most remarkable part was this, this beautiful breast that it had. It was this, this sort of reddish-orange breast. And I sat, stood there just looking and looking and looking at this remarkable bird. And suddenly, in the back of my mind, this little voice said, Robin. Maybe that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all.